Did I? Oh, uh, yeah. Can I, can I take a quick photo of you? Just yeah. As in, in the studio. Hi, everyone. It's Peter here. This is the sixth DTM podcast. In this podcast, I talk to Jocelyn Bailey, who is an expert on participation and using participative practices in design and co-design. We touch on quite a few subjects, but hopefully you'll find it interesting. And as with other podcasts, it's followed by a discussion between Mika and I, where we pick up on various things that Jocelyn talks about and give some further references to the subject area. So I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. So joining us in the studio today is Jocelyn Bailey. Jocelyn has spent a lot of time working with the UK government, really trying to convince them of the benefits of taking a design approach to some of the problems that governments have, particularly in the area of policy. Her research area is also in design for government too. But she's an expert in participation and co-design and she worked for an organisation called Us Creates that used these collaborative approaches in working on complex policy-related problems such as homelessness, child obesity, health screening, things like that. So you're an expert in how to involve people in the process of design, which is why we're talking to you. And uh, Jocelyn, welcome to the DTM pod. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here. That's very nice to have you here too. My first question is, how do you approach the idea of participation when you get a project brief how do you start thinking about involving people in solving Mm. a complex problem so i suppose well first of all we would introduce the idea of participation into a project brief that might not have specified it um because we would argue that that would be a a different or better way of finding out more about the problem or about coming up with some ideas and solutions. So you recommend um, that to the client? We might re- we might actively sort of propose that to a client, even if they hadn't asked for it. But in terms of then thinking about how that how it works within a project or a process, I suppose we'd start off by thinking about what we were trying to achieve and and then who we might need to talk to or hear from in order to understand that a, a particular problem in various different dimensions, there's this idea of representativeness um, that you might want to, or statistical reliability or whatever the term is, that you might want to, if you know that there are this X proportion of people affected by this issue, then you'd want to talk to a representative sample of those people. However, I think our approach would be to try and talk to people with lots of different perspectives on the issue as a way of getting a more a broader set of insights about what might be going on and also I suppose assuming that social problems are not you know subject to the same to to sort of the laws of statistical probability Mm. um, or social issues. Can you give an example of a... So for example um, with homelessness if if the challenge is to find out to think about what what to do to help a particular council reduce homelessness in its area you might not only want to talk to people who are experiencing homelessness but also people who are not experiencing homelessness so but perhaps people who seem to exhibit some of the same characteristics as as people who are experiencing homelessness and yet are not homeless so you have to think quite carefully about the characteristics of the people that you want to involve in the process so is that quite a big part of the process yeah so uh, yes so we wouldn't necessarily 
do all of that before we began the project, but that would be the front end of a project would normally be thinking about doing a little bit more research about what is the nature of the problem we think we're working on and then trying to work out what are the dimensions of this that we want to find out about and who might be able to give us to inform us about that and sometimes thinking quite laterally or creatively about who that might be. And so when you're putting your projects together, do you have any working theory or do you draw any uh, on any particular theory around participation and co-design? Some of the stuff I've just said comes from thinking about how to identify subjects in an ethnographic research process. So we do, I suppose, draw a little bit on some ethnographic theory, but in a very light touch way. Generally, I would say we are, although although I was definitely working with people who were who had PhDs in this subject area. As an organisation, we didn't tend to... We were quite a-theoretical in a way in terms of how we went about doing what we were doing. Yeah, and certainly how I learnt how to do things was by... was sort of by osmosis, so watching and copying colleagues and doing projects with them. So it was quite practice-based in a way. It was sort of... You had a kind of working theory of how how, how to do things. And we definitely had... We definitely had certain things that we would do that we felt would make the process go smoother. So, for example, we would always brief people before on the phone, have a conversation with people before they turned up in, you know, at the co-design workshop, whatever it was we were doing. We would always try and dress the room to make it feel welcoming, actually. Like whether that's sort of buying some flowers, making sure there's, you know, tea and coffee and that kind of thing but making it a nice welcoming space and we would we'd have a bit of a discussion at the beginning about some of the etiquette around co-design things that we would ways that we would like people to be in the workshop in order to to sort of optimize the co-design process so for example sharing ideas rather than keeping them in your head for example or listening to everybody else's idea and not blocking other people's ideas building on things that other people said we had a whole we had a whole list so of, in a way you're sort of teaching people certain behaviors too aren't you? yes exactly yeah so and I think if we'd had longer then perhaps we wouldn't have been so explicit about saying these are the required behaviors mm-hmm. but because quite often you don't want to take up too much of people's time actually um so there was a certain expediency to just saying right this is how we would like everybody to behave please yeah and mostly people kind of responded quite well to that. And we would quite often, so then we would be doing certain activities as part of the co-design workshop, but we would normally start off with some kind of warm-up thing that helped everyone relax a little bit or just loosen up a little bit. So if we wanted them to draw something, we would start off with a drawing activity or if we wanted them to think creatively about something, we'd start off with a sort of lateral thinking activity. So in a way, you're kind of like using a sort of basic theory of psychology in a way that that people people are more communicative communicative when they're relaxed and they're happy and yeah. so it's creating that environment where they can they can perform essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 absolutely uh, so there, there are also some other things some other things i would say about we did one co-design process with about with hun- with over a hundred people that was far too many. <laughs> what what <laughs> problem think, were you working on? <clears throat> well that was we were working on we were trying to to establish a kind of social slash professional community within a particular bit of the health service. So a bunch of professionals who all work on the same thing but in different organisations and we were trying to create a kind of social network for them to all link up. The organisation we were working with had recruited a large number of these people to co-design this thing that they were all going to be part of 
but there are limits to to how, how, how many people. people you can meaningfully do co-design with because there has to be a sense that everyone in the room has heard and, un- and understood the things that the other people in the room have said or at least if they haven't heard what everyone's said they've heard you know maybe what a third of the people have said so they each individual has a sense of the range of views and ideas and experience in the room and and they're therefore able to accept that a particular why a particular outcome is of the co-design process is the way it is but with hundreds of people the outcome or an outcome may look wildly different to what a group of 10 you know 10 people working together have come up with and then therefore they can feel quite alienated Mm. from the whole process so i think there is there are sort of practical physical limits to the numbers of people that it's really possible so, to but, do it so well you're with. also creating a listening environment as well as a as a talking environment yes and a kind of so sort of social space as well how do i had a sort of question around how things work out in practice but you know what's the best what's the best um, participative process that you've sort of been involved with and what what can go wrong and sort of follow up question is when things go wrong mm. is that do interesting things happen when things go wrong mm. is that more interesting in mm-hmm. one way than things going going right often just as a basic principle things always go differently to how you've planned them so there are two ways of dealing with that one way is to not plan too carefully which if you're happy improvising i think is totally acceptable the other thing is to have lots of contingency plans so and i've seen people who are comfortable with one or the other Um, and I think they're both actually acceptable ways of doing things but as long as you always accept that probably what you're going to end up doing or things will turn out differently to your idea yeah exactly (laughs) in terms of sort of good and bad outcomes I think what a good and bad outcome is slightly depends on what your um, agenda is in running the co-design process if it's basically about finding a solution to a problem and that's the brief that you've been set by a client, then lots of things that might happen in a co-design process where it goes slightly awry might feel incredibly unhelpful. Whereas if you're a design researcher or a community organiser or or even a student running a project where there isn't necessarily a client with a specific brief that you're beholden to, that might be the things that go wrong or the ways that things go off-piste might be really interesting. I think generally things that I think are good, whatever the kind of context is, I think if people have, if at least some of the people there feel like they've learned something or have a different perspective on an issue as a result of having been through a participatory process, then I think that's always a good thing. Like, learning is a good thing. So Um, the the (coughs) idea that you've created an open environment that allows people to speak their mind Mm. and that other people see that as insightful Mm, that people might have learned something from listening to someone they would never normally get to hear from for example i think there's also a nice thing that happens where most people often people often say that they are not creative or that they're not artistic or they can't draw or sort of make these statements about themselves which are sort of obviously they've learned that from somewhere but they're also inaccurate and and it's a shame really because i think most like all human beings are creative and i think giving people license to just exercise that muscle that they don't normally get to exercise even for a short time in the context of a co-design workshop is a liberating experience for people and they they often find that quite a positive thing even if at the beginning they're not very comfortable about the idea of it i think there is a thing that looks like a good thing which is often i'm a bit wary of which is 
the sort of high energy and positivity at the end of a workshop where people have gone through a process and come up with a solution they're really excited about. But it's always a virtual solution and what the co-design process or the co-design workshop doesn't take you through is the much trickier, messier task of actually implementing things. So I think that kind of high point at the end of the co-design workshop can be a bit misleading. because yeah. A false. A false, a yeah. A false dawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And often things don't get implemented after that. So it's sort of this virtual... Everyone's very pleased with the virtual outcome. And I think that's something to be a bit wary okay. of. And when things go wrong, mm. what tends to happen mm. then? So normally that's to do with people not not sort of behaving, in scare quotes, um, the way that they're supposed to. And that's normally to do with the fact that people have very different perspectives and interests and agendas on an issue. Like, you know, and that's, that's perfectly valid. And there are some co-design processes where it's OK for those things to be surfaced and it's OK for, conf- for conflict to... So sometimes um, people refuse to... So some, sometimes people might actually refuse to participate or people might be... It's quite often what happens if you're doing a co-design process within an organisation. People might have been sent along to participate and they may not be there willingly. And that's not always a very good basis on which to be perceived. So you've got some people there that uh, don't really want to be there mm. or they don't agree with the, mm. the premise for being mm. there. And then, and, then they, and then they sort of will opt out or refuse or in various different ways and there is there there's this concept in a term coined by cook and qatari they, they talk about the tyranny of participation so participation or participatory practice is something that's been introduced in lots of different fields basically there's no their argument is there's no congenial or positive opposite to joining in so if you if you don't agree with the terms on which the participatory process is happening and you decide that you don't want to participate, then that's always perceived as a negative or, you know, or antisocial or unhelpful or there's no kind of way of that being positively understood, which is why they refer to it as the tyranny of participation. So there is this kind of slightly coercive, socially coercive thing about participatory processes that, that you then also find people reacting to because mm. they can sense that they are being enrolled in something and they're not quite sure what it is, but they are not sure if they want to go along with it. Mm. So there are lots of kind of issues around the edges of mm. the straightforwardly par- participate in my creative process and everything will yeah, be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an incredibly messy thing to try and engage with. I think the longer I've done it, the more I've been able to do something that approximates what is you know described as in i suppose the idea as the uh, the platonic ideal of a co-design process but it still never happens do you have any sort of tips tricks techniques methods that you that um, you use or that you can <coughs> recommend yes so one thing i've observed is this tendency to there's a tendency to assume that there's a set of methods out there which and there definitely are methods out there that you can use but you but you can also just invent them yourself. That's kind of your job, to design the thing, design the tool that you think is going to give you the outcome that you're looking for, not just sort of take something off the shelf from elsewhere. There's a really good thing called Liberating Structures, which is a a resource of practical kind of m- methods and tools to do with groups of people oh, right. on sort of problem solving. Is that a web? Or a it's a web resource, web, yeah. Web resource, okay. And in terms of the kind of m- more thinking through 
some of the issues around co-design, that's what you'd want to then go and look at some of the academic literature for. So people like Thomas Markison has written quite a lot about the sort of democracy and politics and co-design, legislative design. Uh, Jacina Vink and Katerina Vetter-Edmund have written about politics and power and ethics and co-design. In terms of other tips and tricks and things that I use, one analogy or one metaphor that I find really useful is to think about it like designing a game so there are certain moves that the play that this set of players are going to have to make and you you need to sort of think those through ahead of them like and you don't quite know what they're going to do but there's some probable pathways they're going to follow and to just think okay so if I'm asking them to do this thing at this point where is that likely to lead and what needs to happen after that in order to then get us across the finish line and I think that that's... Altogether across, altogether the, finish across the finish line. How might I shepherd this group of people towards that particular outcome? Mm-hmm. And is what I've got planned going to do that? Or do I need to think of something different on the spot? And I think... So almost without them realising, they're going they're going from stage to stage and yeah. you're sort of managing that experience, but but not that they would really uh, realise that. Yes, but and, and not in a kind of Machiavellian or, or sort of, you know, puppet master type way, because... You also want to be open to the things that people are saying and what's actually going on for that group of people. Another helpful metaphor is just to think of yourself as the kind of as the host, and you want to try and be quite a skillful host in that you want people to everybody to be able to have the airtime to speak and to say what they think and to feel comfortable and to have actually have a good time as well. And that's a that's a set of skills that. Um, it's a different set of skills to the sort of designerly set of skills, but um, so it's creating more sort of, a creating a stage, yeah, a comfortable stage, a comfortable, for yeah, 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 hosting a, a a a comfortable sort of social happening. Yeah, um, so it's quite a different range of skills mm. that you've developed from starting off as a you know can a, a, a designer, yeah, into a sort of a different kind of design, but different type, kinds of abilities too. Yeah, and it know. definitely, I mean. It draw it does it draws on a very different part of my brain to the bit that learn how to design you know architectural layouts. Okay, and so like a final question is about sort of representation in a way who mm. you who you get to participate in your processes. So I'm thinking of people that are are very hard to reach. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess in homelessness, homeless people are quite hard to reach. Mm. But if you if you need people from different ethnicities, people from different genders, people from different countries mm. or different with different expertise it's, it's difficult to get mm. a mix of people mm. and I'm wondering how much that mix of people that you get actually affect the outcome mm. so how much those people that you get in the room actually represent the things that you you need representing there's, there's always going to be imperfect I think you're never going to be able to get exactly the perfect set of participants I think one thing that's really important is just to re- just to think through what the rationale is for who you're involving and why you're involving them and definitely avoid tokenism there is an argument that doing it imperfectly is better than coming up with ideas on your own with the input from nobody don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good or whatever that saying is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay I think that's a good point to end thank you very much Jocelyn okay been a great thank so- you great to talking to you <laughs> great talking to you <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that was Jocelyn Bailey. It's good talking to her. I think she's got quite a lot of experience of working, particularly in high levels in, in government. But you're also very experienced in participation, Mika. I wonder what you thought of the interview. Yeah, it was really nice to listen to Jocelyn talking about her work. 
Um, I know Jocelyn's work uh, a little bit, and I, it's it's interesting to hear how she talks about politics and democracy and those kind of things. I think one of the things that we really need to talk about when we talk about co-design is the kind of history of this, because something strange is going on here, which I think is causing a lot of confusion. So the terms co-design and participatory design they they kind they've of been intermixed, they've they? been intermixed, yeah. but they're actually quite different things. Mm. So participatory design is quite an old term. Uh, it's got a Scandinavian tradition. I think it goes back to architecture too. In the early seventies, that's right. There was you know participatory approaches were trying to get past the tyranny of architects deciding everything for their for the the people that were inhabiting their buildings. Yeah, and, uh, and particularly in in workplace design, and there was this kind of democratic ideal that if you are designing something, a workplace for workers, then those workers should have a say in whatever you were designing. So that was really the democratic part. But also, you know, they realized quite quickly that if they were doing that, they were actually generating much better designs as well that were much more usable and useful and people were much ha happier in those workplaces. So this idea of participatory design then uh, also started gaining traction in the design of computer systems and human-centered design and really understanding that you know when you involve people in your design process, you will get better outcomes apart from this democratic ideal. So they're, they're feeding, I feeding ideas into the design process for the designer to sort of draw on somehow. So it's a kind of wider pool of ideas. Yeah, that's how I would probably explain it. And what's important to mention there is that the designer is in charge mm -hmm. in the end. Even though there's a democratic ideal, you involve people in the process, they participate, so to say, but they are not creating a design. Now, co-design, which basically means collaborative design, has a very different origin. I mean, we've been talking, I don't know when this started, but we've been talking about collaborative design for a long time. And there's been many studies about how designers and different from different disciplines work together collaboratively to create a design. So in industri industrial design, we would typically look at how uh, multidisciplinary teams involving product designers, marketeers, uh, engineers work together and co collaboratively they create a design. Now, in that case, which really is every design process in practice is collaborative. That's it? right. So, yeah. There's no such thing as a non-collaborative yeah. design process, at least not in the type of design that we're doing in this faculty. So in that case, there's not one person who is in charge. This is really essentially a collaborative process. Now, since this since design has become more popular in a, in a public context and public sector context, but also social context, this idea of participation has gained traction very quickly because, of course, this democratic ideal is very important. So, you know, if we are going to design stuff here for people, then we should involve those people in the process. Somehow that has become co-design. And the problem with it is, um, and I think that Jocelyn explained that in a way, is that if you involve people in the process as part of this democratic ideal, but you call it co-design, then people are going to expect that you're actually going to design something together in this process. And Jocelyn calls and this... And that's going to be the outcome. That is the outcome. That is the goal. So then people are often disappointed, you know, when this virtual solution, as Jocelyn uh, calls it, is not going to be implemented. The other side of that is that I often see with students here that uh, the master students, when they're graduating, there seems to be some kind of idea that you have to do a co-design session. 
Uh, and then when I ask students, why are you doing that? They will say, well, you know, there will be lots of IDs that are generated there. And then I will choose one of those and work with that. Uh, but then when I ask them, then, you know, what is your role as, it, as a designer, if you're leaving it up to those people to design something for you and those people, they're not even designers, then that's always an important question to ask. I, th I think that's what I was trying to get to in the interview was, was the, 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 the political bits around the edges of, of um, co-design processes, but also participatory processes where there's a sort of not exactly a hidden agenda, but someone has to make decisions at some point, you know, so yes. it's sort of like the premise that you get people into a room to collaborate and what their expectations of the result will be. But who's really going to make the decision? So in, in a lot of political process, I think jo Jocelyn talked about homelessness there, her project. In, but I, I think they, they presented a solution there, but it wasn't taken up by the local government. So, so you know, the, some other political process can take over and just and sideline the sideline the results so it's and that can be really disappointing too yes and i think it's important to clarify that when you invite people to a session like that that it's really to get a better sense of what the problem really is i mean that's what's basically jocelyn was saying at the start this is really just about gaining an understanding of the problem and it's different from kind of a ethnographic study because in in these sessions you of, often have people actually create something and you do ask them for ideas but the goal is not the idea in itself it's why they create that idea and they think that is a good idea so it's really again input for a broader design process now what you're saying is quite important about the political aspect of it because this context that Jocelyn is talking about is quite different from a regular design process where you have a lot more to say as a designer. So you do need to think about, you know, who is making the decisions here and if, you know, that person should also be there in that But process. also one of the key decisions that, that, you know, I talked about with Jocelyn was who you invite and, and, and how, how representative they are of the group that you're trying to get to. So I think as, as certainly the history of product design or user-centered design, we've, we've created this concept of the abstract user the user is the center of the process, but who is that user? You, normally it's whoever's around you. <laughs> you know, you, it has to be, you have to be quite thorough and rigorous to really get to the people that are actually going to use your products and see how they, see how they use the products in the process of developing that product too. Mm. So most of the time, but well, particularly in the educational environment, the users are whoever's around, which happens to be students. So, so it's you're you're conflating one category of person with another category of person. I think that's that's an important thing that has to be sort of said. How you get these people and and who they actually represent and whether that's useful in your process is important. Absolutely. And then the other thing that plays out in this in the public and social space is that you don't just invite users. That kind of the people who are going to be affected with whatever's being designed. You also invite people who will start taking action. So they're more uh, active um, people in this, in this context, uh, which means that uh, you need to also help them create solutions or interventions, whatever you will want to call them, that's going to work for them. There's a really nice example I know by a lady called uh, Cheryl Dahl, and she started this initiative called The Future of Fish, which was about the uh, challenges around uh, overfishing and, you know, all the ecosystems problem we have in the oceans, that there's, you know, the biodiversity of fish, basically. What she did was she brought a lot of entrepreneurs together 
who were then trying to do something about this complex problem. But they all knew that on their own, there was not so much that they could do. So, for example, she worked with um, with a chef, you know, who wanted to cook with more sustainable fish. But she also worked with uh, fishermen and she also worked with people who were kind of in the middle uh, working at the fish auctions, for example. She then kind of also invites those people together and organizes co-design. But the outcome of that is not just one thing. It's multiple things that those people then take on to then uh, start taking forward. And uh, she also has a really interesting process uh, or interesting principles of who to, to invite. So who should have a seat at the table? So firstly, that's those people who are going to do something. They are people who can deal with uh, ambiguity. They are willing to take risk. She has a really nice video that I will share in which she talks about the same thing that Jocelyn mentions, and she calls it no jerks. <laughs> <laughs> so no one who's going to really cut off that creative process. And the last video, and that's really interesting. She says, I don't want designers. No designers. Because I don't want designers to then come up with ideas that, you know, my people can't can't work with. So, um, yeah, I find that a really interesting um, when you when you talk about co-design. It's so many different things. Yeah, I think it can lead in a lot of different places too. It's, yes. it's almost happens, you can have it outside of design departments, designers, design, you know, outside the design industries too, which I think is yes. interesting. It's sort of you're drawing on people's kind of natural ability to want to solve problems and to, to, to use their experience in suggesting solutions. Yeah, but it hasn't, doesn't have to do not doesn't necessarily have to do anything with design so it's much more uh, about you know a creative process process oh what can i do as an entrepreneur to address this issue what kind of tools do i have is that really still a design process mm -hmm. you know in the yeah, sense yeah. that we've yeah. been talking about it in yeah. in this podcast series? One, of, one of the references that i had that i think is quite interesting it is um hillary cotton who was um a uk-based designer and she was awarded designer of the year uh, I, I can't remember when it was. I think it was 20, uh, uh, 2010 or something. She's a sociologist, I think. I think that's her background. But she And she was one of the designers of the Double Diamond process. So she worked for the Design Council in the UK and came up with the Double Diamond. I've interviewed her before and she sort of said, we came up with this, this Double Diamond thing. We didn't know whether it was going to work, but, you know. And she is really good at getting the right expertise in the room. That's her real skill. So she's worked on the prison system in the UK. Uh, I think she's worked on um, old age, uh, problems of old age and what happens, loneliness, things like that. And she selects very carefully who you have in the room. She does work with designers, so there's not, there, there are designers in the room, but architects and people that people that have real insight into the the systems that she's she's working with, and she somehow brings them together and creates solutions that are really good solutions. I, she's really impressive, I think. Mm. Do you so think there are any limits to participation in terms of? You know, what, what problems can you work on that are better not solved with participation or co-design? Or do you think it always provides some positive? <laughs> well, we even did co-design with the design of this uh, course, <laughs> if you remember. That's a difficult question. Because I suppose comparing it to the, I don't know, the... the platonic ideal or the ideal design process where the designer decides everything you know when yes. it's every every detail you know the yeah the all-seeing architect 
I think you it's always useful to have people participate in your process, to be honest, but not participation for the sake of participation. I've had discussions with Paul Hackett about this because he doesn't really believe that you need participatory design at all because the designers are skillful enough you know, to design products themselves. And I'd probably agree with that. But when, you, when you're looking at design in more complex spaces and you really want to understand that problem space, then it's always useful to involve people, not as designers, but just, you know, to understand that problem space. But I, I thought Jocelyn made a good point when she said that you're a designer, you should design the tool yourself, not use other tools. So perhaps that's the, that's the design process is designing the design process. That's what, that's the real talent is the ability to design a process that's going to deliver an outcome that you 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 don't expect somehow or that you're you don't have a lot of control over mm. um, but you do have a lot of control over how you design the process yeah. so it's a different kind of yeah. um, control in different I, different, I would agree yeah. and uh, I think you can actually use your design skills there because it's also about the framing again so really about you know why do we really want to do this what do we want to get out, out of this how do we really frame this session is this a political session is this really a design session? Is this a session to understand the problem set space? Is this a session to build relationships? Um, I think that's true that, you know, that design of that session is a, is a real skill. Okay, I think we should leave it there. I mean, so really, <laughs> it sparks off a lot of ideas, yes. doesn't it? About yes. um, a, a lot of problems and how you can bring other people into the, into the process. So uh, thanks, Mika. Thanks, Peter. Very interesting. Thank <laughs> you.